This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome to another episode of Chronicles Magazine Podcast. I'm happy to be joined today by Patrick Casey. Uh, he is the host of Restoring Order, and this is actually our third time recording. We had a couple hiccups um, several weeks ago, but Patrick, thank you for gracefully joining us once again. Well, it's glad to be back. I feel like a return guest uh, at this point, even though this will be the first episode the audio sees, but uh, anyone who's recorded a podcast knows that these issues are uh, uh, not not entirely escapable. Right. And just before we went on, of course, your internet went down, which is another common problem that we've had. But we're on for now. Order has been restored and we're ready to go. <clears throat> so, well, first of all, I want to talk a lot about last time we were going to talk about Vivek and we can still talk about that today, although that's dated news. And as far as the Internet goes, anything past a day old is old news. But today uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. I also want to talk about just more general news items and trends and cultural issues. Um, but why don't you give us a little bit of a of a background of yourself and where you came from and how you kind of came into these ideas that you presently hold? Sure. Well, I uh, you know I've always been interested in what's going on in the world. I actually never really had a real like conservative phase until until I became I what I would say is dissident right or, pa or paleo conservative I was involved you know I was interested growing up as a teenager in you know just like conspiracy theories what's what are the bankers up to uh sorts of things and I discovered Ron Paul and Alex Jones and it was around 2016 when I started really looking into issues like immigration and national identity as was the case with Many others, in large part, thanks to President Trump uh, and his, you know, introducing these ideas uh, to the world. And, and it caused many people to dig a little deeper uh, beyond just kind of the basic standard fare MAGA. And yeah, so that's I, I ended up getting involved in politics as kind of uh, an influencer. I don't really like the term, but uh, so much of what I've done has been social media advocating against what could be termed the great replacement and, you know, speaking truthfully about the nature of of crime uh, in this country and and other other you know group differences things like that, and that's uh, yeah I've done that in various forms since I got involved in this stuff uh, late 2015 2016. These days I contribute to Chronicles Magazine. I have the weekly podcast Restoring Order as you mentioned, and I was reinstated uh, to Twitter, so I'm back uh, glued to the screen, tweeting up a storm uh, most days as uh, was the case. Uh, for for most of my involvement in this, I was I was banned from Twitter for quite some time, and you know popped back on under throwaway burner Twitter accounts. Uh, but I'm I'm back in action officially, so it's it's good to be back. During the first recording that we had, we were talking about Vivek and his announcement for the presidency, and he continues just to push this um, you know proposition nation that we're all individuals and we don't really have these like historically laden cultural aspects to us, but we're all just individuals and that we can come together by holding to shared ideals. Um, but we we want to critique that, and I don't think that is consistent with a much older conservatism. So talk a little bit about your analysis of some of the things that he mentioned during his um, announcement on Tucker Carlson, if you can recall what he said. Uh, but he basically was just making this argument that he 
represents um, a mentality that's that's uh, above above sort of this historically grounded and rooted American conservatism. Comment a little bit on his um, you know candidacy and, and what it means. So I, I'll start off by being charitable. I don't remember how charitable I was the first time we talked about this. I'll be a little charitable here, and I think just at the basic policy level, some of the things. Vivek Ramaswamy advocates for are actually very good. He's advocated for ending affirmative action altogether. That would be incredible for a number of reasons. He's advocated uh, for abolishing the FBI, which you know, I, I, I think I would generally support. I'd rather try to reconstitute it. I don't know if, if maybe you would have to abolish it altogether to uh, replace it with something better. I don't know. Um, because the thing at the end of the day, the FBI does go after, uh, you know, completely removed from politics, uh, some of the most heinous people uh, in criminals imaginable. So you you do need to have some apparatus doing that. But maybe you would have to reconstitute the FBI, get rid of it altogether, create something new to, to have that. Uh, you know, it's obviously been very politicized. I don't know if going in, running, saying you're going to destroy the FBI, is, that, that might be a great way to tip off the FBI to try to do to you, what they did to Trump, that's that's a whole separate story. But some of these things that, that he advocates for are very good. And he's advocated for uh, a reduction or changes to the immigration system. Now, he said that the immigration system is bad because it keeps out people like his parents. So there is a, a very obvious ethnic, you know, immigrant interest in that that isn't that isn't, you know, historic America is being replaced by the third world. No, that's that qualified uh, immig Indian immigrants are being kept out of the country. Now, a merit-based immigration system could be better. It could be worse. A lot of it has to do with how many people are coming in. Uh, if the Great Replacement continues, but it's with Brahmins and uh, Chinese, who, again, could be perfectly good people, but they're going to have different interests. They're going to get sucked into the left's coalition, and it's just not it, you wouldn't get America at the end of the day, right? You'd get more woke commissars and government bureaucrats, woke CEOs, these these sorts of things. Uh, all of them, in fact, most of them do not end up as Vivek Ramaswamy. And uh, you know, even someone who is right of center, an Indian immigrant, uh, descendant of immigrants, still wants to keep uh, immigration coming from his country. So it's um there, there are separate cases to be made against low skilled legal or illegal immigration, right? You have potential uh, increases in crime and welfare usage uh, and things of this nature. Uh, but there's absolutely a separate case to be made and an equally valid, perhaps even more valid case to be made against high-skilled immigration. Again, these people are going to come over and they're going to have a very strong group identity. They're not going to see themselves uh, as, as, as really part of the same group as historic white Americans, uh, to be frank. Some of them will, again, be be conservative, sure, but most of them will be liberals and will join in with the left. So, you know, even if ending affirmative action, well, there's a clear high socioeconomic status immigrant group interest in doing so because uh, Asians, uh, East Asians and, and Indians, I believe to some extent too, are being discriminated against as a result of affirmative action. Now, they don't get it as bad as white people do as far as the data that I've seen. Um, and obviously, the left's agenda is overwhelmingly focused at bashing white people who don't go along with wokeness. But I think it's just important to look at what uh, what he's saying and and Vivek Ramaswamy and understand that it's you know there's there's some good there, but there's some bad. And the way that we talk about immigration and national identity has has to go beyond this idea that well, just as long as the immigrants coming here are qualified, 
then that's fine. Okay, well, they're going to be, again, qualified to take over institutions uh, as, as you know, leftists motivated in part by kind of some of these historical grievances against the West uh, or just or just pursuing what they perce- perceive to be the best for their group interests. I mean, it's worth keeping in mind, too, that, you know, most most white people don't really view themselves in, in as having like a strong in-group. Uh, most conservative white people see themselves as Americans. They might identify additionally with their religion. Maybe they have, if they're Italian or um, Scots-Irish or something, they might have some level of identity based on that sub-national, right, that's below the national level. But at the same time, they, they forget that so many other groups, particularly immigrants, have a very strong identity that is sub-national. It could be Chinese. It could be Indian. <laughs> Pardon me, there are lawyers, associations, fraternities, clubs, all sorts of things that are basically ethno-nationalist in nature uh, for these other groups. Those don't exist for white people. And you just have to keep in mind that, um, you know, if an increasingly diverse society is going to be increasingly tribal. And we really have to ask ourselves, even though even there can be perfectly good, nice, non-white people, but you have to ask yourself, as an increasingly tribal society, diverse tribal society, uh, is that going to be America? Is it going to be an America that works better? Are people going to be uh, able to get along as well? And, you know, I don't know if you want to get into the data on that, but there's a lot of, there, there are many studies that go into that and and prove that that's not the case. So that that's kind of a lengthy, um, I'll, I'll tone it down there for now. We can take it in whichever direction you would like to go. But yeah, it's worth keeping these things in mind. Yeah, you know, I, I'm interested in in things like that because there's been this very obvious anti-white agenda, um, and it's been around since the '60s. Um, but obvi- anyone who's paying attention will recognize that in the last few years, it's really um, been heightened. You know, there's been a fuel under its momentum, and I think that there's been sort of this conservative response um, toward a colorblindness, right? That's that's the that's the word, that's the phrase that's used not only by Vivek, but other people that are doing good things like um, Chris Rufo, you know, they really emphasize this colorblind because it's seen as this um, acceptable alternative to an affirmative action world. And the affirmative action world is the world that's, you know, uh, out before us where there's obvious political benefits to being in the racial minority or being in the now the sexual minority. Um, and they use that momentum to basically um, suppress, you know, white uh, heterosexual uh, males mostly. But this that's overall agenda. And so the response to that has been this very um, liberal. It is a classical liberal response of being uh, individualistic and having this colorblind uh, mentality. Yeah, well, we're never getting the America of the 50s back or the 70s or the 80s. Uh, but we can always have a better version of what we have now. And I think what's what's absolutely vital is asking how we get there. What 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 does that look like and, and how do we get there? And I, I think the best way is just to focus on the immediate problems. First and foremost is to focus on the problems I think the paleoconservatives have done and continue to do an excellent job at diagnosing American decline, particularly post-war. What went wrong? I had Professor Gottfried on my program to talk exactly about that. What happened to America? And, you know, it's a very lengthy discussion. But the point is, is we can, even if we're never, there's there's no rewinding the clock, right? There's no rewinding uh, the tape, so to speak. We can't ever go back to the 50s or the 60s or whatever. You know, the 80s now, I guess, is kind of the idyllic, uh, long-forgotten time uh, that everyone wants to return to. 
We can't. Um, we can we can make things better though. And restricting immigration, uh, institute implementing hard on crime policies and flaws, these these things are gonna make whatever future America we have far more livable. I would also add, yeah, again and ending uh, affirmative action cracking down on the woke bureaucracy. And of course, that's really the last one is kind of the main one. There has to be a change in power because the main issue is the people don't really control who's in charge, right? The, the, even it's one of the most important and illustrative elements of, of Trump, his four years in office is, okay, you finally get an outsider who runs, who's not controlled by the uniparty, and you elect him. You manage to elect him. Okay, well, at the end of the day, you have these unelected bureaucrats who are largely, you know, not they're not they're not answer they don't answer to Trump, right? They're not they're almost entirely not accountable to the democratic process. You have those people who are who are in charge, more or less, right? Um, so the the fact of the matter is that's got to be a big goal too, is is changing that. So other if you just vote someone else in and thinks, yeah. So these are things that could absolutely make the country better. And of course, pushing back on the trans insanity, the egregious LGBT agenda, particularly as it pertains to children. All of this is good. All of this is good. But can we ever fully go back? No, no. But it's important to understand what it made America good to begin with. And moreover, in a, a bigger picture sense, what makes a country good? Just kind of generally speaking, which which qualities, which policies, which ideals lead to success? civilizationally and so much of what the left is about now is transgressing against these more or less historical norms right they're against the idea of having you know you could say that you could argue there's some degree of variation throughout history with regard to what civilizations viewed as in terms of sexuality or whatever but the left is at war with all of those basically uh to even hold that there that there is you know that there should be standards that there should be generals so to speak Differences between men and women and that their should, society should treat them differently is like, you know, this whole radical, crazy proposal. Well, most civilizations have had that. The left is at war with that. The left is at war with borders, with identity, with in-group preference when it comes to uh, people who are, you know, the historic peoples of the West. So I think it's just important to understand what worked in the first place, particularly within the context of America and how we could try to get as close to that as possible. But again, whatever America there is going forward, it's going to look very different. It's going to look very different than than what we've had in the past. You know, it's interesting. If you look at what's going on in, in Britain, um, <clears throat> I think you tweeted out a couple of relevant um, observations about uh, they have a new, uh, I guess, first minister. I think that's the title that they give him. Yeah, in um, Scotland. And, yeah. yeah, in Scotland. And he's, he's Pakistani. They're, you know, and it's just... Um, you look at this lineup, you know, they have an Indian who's um, in, in England and they have a Pakistani who's in Scotland. And you just um, you can see so clearly that their priorities are completely at odds with with the base population or, you know, like in London, it's I think I think, you know, English people are a minority now. But just in these historically um, British peoples, in these historically British lands, they're completely um occupied by uh, a, a type of a mentality that has really subdued them um, so that they can have these leaders that have priorities completely at odds uh, with their own past. Um, and you brought this up because, and I think it's a really good point. We talk a lot about the crime that can happen with, you know, immigration and people that don't, um, uh, you know, hold to historical Western norms, you know, you know, respective property and all of those things. 
um, in the violence that comes out of that. But you also have this new civilization rising too, where there are leaders ingrained in politics that aren't that aren't criminals in, in the you know traditional sense of the word, but they have you know worked up the ranks because there is no emphasis on culture, and so you know you just see these priorities completely at odds with the people, and you see the same thing happen in in America. And it's this completely uniform trajectory uh, here and in Europe where people are basically just occupied by foreigners in a way that their ancestors would never have, you know, they would have saw that as a state of emergency. Um, so I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, some of those trends. Yeah, I mean, were you to go back 50 years ago, maybe even not that long, and show the average person in any Western nation what the, the composition of their government looks like, let alone uh, the average school or, or neighborhood or town square, they, they would be horrified. There's no way around the fact that the great replacement, that is the intentional replacement of the indigenous peoples of the West, right, white people, uh, of various ethnic groups, by foreigners is an integral part of the globalist agenda. If you are right of center, if you're against leftism and globalism, you have to be against that. You have to be against that. That is one of the main means by which the left is able to exercise control. Um, you know, it's when you talk about what's happening in Scotland in particular, I mean, it's it's not isolated. You have uh, Sadiq Khan in, uh, he was the mayor of London. I don't know if he still is, but um, he was the guy who famously said that terrorist attacks are part and parcel of living in a big city after one of the horrific attacks that befell, I believe it was London. Maybe I forget the exact one, right? The 2016, 2017, they were all over the place. They were happening very often. And there's no way around the fact that someone of of that background is, is going to have a different position, especially if they're Muslim. There's the religious angle as well. Uh, they're just not going to see radical Islam as, as great of a threat. And they're just not going to see mass immigration as uh, the threat that it is, because they see that and they say, well, they want to keep out people like me. Um, now, of course, I guess you, you could find some examples. I know there are plenty of Hispanics, for example, who would advocate against mass immigration, but they're not in the majority by any means. Uh, and there is a, even a trend among conservative people of immigrant backgrounds where, you know, sometimes they are uh, socially conservative, but they still want more people like them coming into the country. Uh, so it's unacceptable for a Muslim to be the first minister of, of Scotland. Um, it's unacceptable for, yeah, Britain, yeah, the England, uh, or pardon me, yeah, the UK has a has a British prime minister, is, is, oh, pardon me, British, uh, has a, a an Indian prime minister as well, I forget his name. Um, I think I think I saw a tweet saying that the Church of England, the prime, the prime minister control who uh, the bishop, the nomination of like bishops in the Church of England. So there's like a weird religious element. The guy's a Hindu. This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. And conservatives who don't want to look at race, don't want to look at, you know, these identity things because they've been taught that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. founded conservatism and you're not allowed to see you know, the color of the skin. Look, it's, it's, I don't think that becoming like hardline white nationalists is, is the answer, but we're presented with this false choice between race being everything on the one hand or race being nothing. And the establishment wants you to think that those are the two options that race explains everything. It's the only lens through which you can look things through things, or it's not one that, that you should look through at all. Um, you know, and there, there, I mean, there are obviously tons of white people I wouldn't want running countries, but yes, obviously the fact that you have 
Middle Eastern Muslims running countries. And again, the guy who's I forget his name, um, the the first minister of Scotland, just just to put a finer point on this prior to getting elected, explicitly, explicitly complained about Scotland being too white. So it's not like he's even one of these rare cases where he is of an immigrant background and he recognizes the threat that, you know, he's so assimilated that he just views himself as, as a Scottish guy. No, this is someone who clearly views himself as distinct from mm. the Scottish people who are white. You know, there, mean, there's some, <clears throat> I, I, I'm not ruling out assimilation altogether, but well, yeah, and we can get into that too because you know, assimilation is interesting because they've already ch completely changed the culture, right? They've already created this new mass, this new generation of consumers. Uh, so what does assimilation even mean anymore? Assimilation yeah. is something where anybody from any part in the world can come and be like a top-notch consumer and then they're fully assimilated. You know, so like yeah. I, assimilation may have been a good, you know, point to a, a good grounds of debate in the 50s and 60s prior to um, the revolution, the, the immigration revolution. But what does it even mean now and how important is it? Because I'm not assimilated to the current culture, <laughs> neither are you, presumably, yeah. you know, in so many ways. So maybe talk a little bit about assimilation, like to, to what extent should we even, you know, rely on assimilation as a legitimate um, or even like a meaningful argument? Well, if you would ask the average person on the street what it means to be an American, what is American culture, they're going to have some distorted understanding of America's founding, where <clears throat> actually the founding fathers had in mind, you know, that that, that this was uh, Lizzo twerking while playing, was it James Madison's flute? I don't, I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that, but uh, that is the thing that happened. And, you know, Lizzo, this obese black uh, ra female rapper, she she played the flute that, like, the... Uh, some government agency, the Library of Congress or something, let her let her play. They took it out. James Madison's flute so that she uh, could play it. And, you know, there's this idea, there's this false historicism where this is, and you see some reactionary types on the right buy into this, that, well, this is the logical conclusion of the American founding because the founders talked of equality, which, again, they meant for white men. They didn't even mean it for, for white women. Um, let alone women of other races, uh, that it was all leading up to this. So the, the point that I'm getting at here is that American history has been so severely distorted mm -hmm. that when you ask people what it means to be an American, they see no issue with, with they, they think that this is what it's all about, that all of American history leading up until now has been, you know, the march of progress. And, you know, some will say the founding fathers were racist and this isn't what they wanted, but like this is, America's based on equality, whatever. So the point is, is just to take it away from a more abstract historical consideration, what, what is it, in, in a concrete sense, what does it mean to assimilate to American culture at this point? And look, there's historic America, which existed prior to civil rights, basically, mm -hmm. and to some extent still exists. Um, but then there's there's the new America that was created post-civil rights, and that is now turned into to wokeness and and whatever. Where America is basically about, um, you know, again, Lizzo twerking while playing. It's it's Let about me... hip hop culture. It's about consumerism. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, drag queen story hours, and ultimately, this is so much is downstream from power. It's a really important <clears throat> takeaway that people need to understand. Sometimes you can yeah, there's there's some you know bottom up. You change the culture, maybe maybe that changes power, not necessarily. Um, but oftentimes, committed groups of people will change stuff at the top. And that will trickle down. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's happened. And it's enforced right downward. 
And that's really what happened with the civil rights law, right? Because when you talk about trans this and BLM this or whatever, this is backed by state power. This is the ideology of the regime, of the empire. And so when you talk about immigrants assimilating, well, that's just what they're assimilating to. Right. Um, to the extent that historic America exists today, it's really just kind of Trumpism, which, you know, mainstream conservatism, populism, which largely has has accepted a lot of the presuppositions of of the civil rights movement and of New America. It just has, uh, you know, some semblance, some ties to to historic America. So yeah, immigrants are assimilating. Okay, to what end? Right. If they come over right. here and they, oh, they learn the language. Oh, they're paying taxes. Oh, they're going to college. OK, but they're, you know, ruthless advocates for leftism for their particular ethnic group, Contra, white America. So I, I think and I've, I've had good success talking to the, you know, I've been to Trump rallies and whatever. And I talk to people about this stuff. And once you start framing it in this way, can, you know, the average conservative that previously was saying, well, they just need to come here and assimilate. They're like, yeah, you know, you've, you're raising some good points here. So it's it's imperative to deconstruct. I'm glad you asked that question about assimilation. It's absolutely imperative for right-wingers to deconstruct these terms, particularly when they're seen on the right. You still have conservatives that are like, well, just as long as they come legally. No, absolutely not. Right. Uh, as long as they assimilate. No, no. It's, you know, we have to correct these errors. Yeah, you know, assimilation meant something completely different, you know, before the civil rights revolution. Um, in so many different ways. And, you know, one of the things that you brought up was just the conservative movement and its inability to distinguish between the pre and post civil rights, because the conservative movement largely has sort of bought into this um, this myth that America was founded as a propositional nation where we have these ideals. And so then the, uh, you know, the the emancipation of individuals today, whether they be, you know, the transsexual movement or uh, BLM, you know, or, or things like that, those are sort of the fruition of, like you said, the American Revolution. Well, a lot of that was perpetrated by the post-war American or the conservative movement. So, you know, I don't think conservatives are really understand what's going on because now you have conservatives like David, uh, yeah, David French, and all those guys. I mean, they're just they're just defending the same things that progressives, you know, were fighting for ten years ago. And that's just always the story of conservatives because they bought into that same lie, and no one is defending something prior to the revolution. And and like you said, we can't return back. We're not going to recreate. Um, you know, the American character. Uh, but I think properly interpreting it could go a long way in uh, being able to decide uh, what's next, what's next and provide legitimate solutions. Um, so talk about the failure of conservatism and, and the fact that it's it's basically bought into the same myth and therefore it's allowed, you know, all these woke leftists to use that same narrative, to use the same uh, argument, you know, line of thinking about, you know, the emancipated individual. They use that same argument that conservatives use, and there's no, there's no limiting principle uh, for conservatism that for post-war conservatism, and therefore, you know, they're on that same train. You're absolutely correct about the leftward shift, so to speak. Uh, the first piece I wrote for Chronicles magazine was just about was just about that. Uh, why conserve? I forget the exact title. Something. Uh, why conservatism conserves nothing. Conservatism. Something to that effect. Yes, it's a subject that is discussed quite a bit in paleocon dissident right circles. It's a very important one. Uh, the fact that the when you have this just monstrous process of erosion of of historic America of the historic West, and that alone, obviously, the leftism is is the problem, but. 
you know, the issue, the other problem is that, you know, the sensible opposition to that is utterly toothless, compromised, and ineffective at handling this challenge. Now, when it comes to why conservatives lose, why conservatism fails, I, that's that's a really big discussion. I think the main thing to keep in mind is the left has more power, right? Leftism is the ruling ideology. It is the uh, civil rights is leftist. Um, you know, this is why companies will, you know, if a company violates like politically correct norms that are enshrined in the law through as a result of like hostile work environment or discrimination or, or whatever, then, you know, they're going to have to pay, they're going to pay a price. They're going to pay a price. They could be sued. A Tesla was sued by for, for 140 million, I believe successfully by some employee who laid, alleged uh, racial discrimination, hostile work environment. So the point, the point is, is like when, when the state, the most powerful entity in society has a particular ideological bent, not even just bent, it, it, it you know, mission, messianic ideological mission, both at home and abroad, then the side that is against that is going to be fighting an uphill battle. And people are going to feel that it is politically advantageous, electorally, culturally, to adopt some of the left's talking points, positions, and, and whatever else. Why? Because you're trying to garner fate. You're trying to get the left off your back a little bit. And it's almost like a form of uh, political Stockholm syndrome. And it doesn't work, right? Because you you don't beat the left by becoming the left. Because even if you do manage to win election, right? Okay, so what if the Republican Party started advocating for open borders, uh, Black Lives Matter, transgenderism? Uh, to some extent, some some wings of it absolutely have. You could probably find National Review defenses of all of those things. Um, the, you know, the conservative case for transgenderism, the conservative these these articles do exist. They do mm -hmm. exist. Now. It's, but if you were to do that, if the Republican Party were to entirely become leftist, there would be no point in it winning. Maybe it would win more elections. I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's a counterfactual. It's a hypothetical that is only useful to demonstrate that you know, you, there's a reason why you don't do this, right? There has to be. You have to ask, to what end are, are we trying to get the Republican Party to win elections? To what end do we want the right to win? We only want the GOP to win insofar as it is advocating for and representing real paleocon right-wing dissident right values and ideas, right? Traditional Christianity, identity, law and order. These are the things that matter. And if the GOP is just, you know, it's, it's, what's the point, right? I, I had a conversation with, uh, you know, someone who was successful and intelligent at, at some kind of political gathering, you know, I was like a year or two ago. And he was telling me that, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, this was actually good because you're stealing a we uh, uh, an arrow out of the left's quiver. Okay, well, first of all, the left will still call you tra transphobic. So, you know, you're, you're, not, you're never going to fully evade these accusations. Uh, second of all, the left will, cause, uh, will, will call Caitlyn Jenner transphobic, right? It, they do that with Rick Grinnell and, uh, you know, gays in the Republican Party. They say that they're you know, vote quizlings, they're vote, they're, they're representing, they're, they're traitors to the cause of, of being gay or whatever. <laughs> and so, so you're not actually stealing anything from the left. And the important takeaway here really is that people who care deeply about issues like homophobia and transphobia, all of these liberal buzzwords vote for the left. They're never going to go along with the Republican party, right? The, the left has a monopoly on these concepts, on these talking points and for that reason to try to use them to try to beat the left at its own game, okay, well, it doesn't work 
just doesn't work, right? Those people who care about those issues, well, we don't want them first and foremost. Second of all, they're never going to they're never going to join you, right? The left has a monopoly on those. And then third of all, you you it's not just ineffective, it's counterproductive because you damage yourself. You bring in the rot of leftism into your own camp, into the camp that exists ostensibly to combat leftism. So it's entirely misguided and it's ultimately a sign of weakness. You are going along with the beliefs and values of a stronger opponent because ultimately you're weak. Now, I will I will just, just to cap that off, we do have to be pragmatic, okay? We do have to be pragmatic. If we go out and advocate for the status quo of like, you know, I don't know, the 17th century or some people would want to do uh, like the early medieval ages or Let's do it. maybe some people want to bring back uh, the Roman Empire or something, the norms of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the, you're obviously not going to win elections. Uh, you, you have to you have to meet people where you're at. But the fact of the matter is, like the punditry, it's totally fine for us to say, okay, if you're trying to get elected, you know, maybe we should the, the the way you handle some of these issues should be done tactically. Okay, um, you know, if if you know, is is it mand? Are we only going to vote for a president if he's going to undo gay marriage? Right? I don't really support. I, you know, I don't support gay marriage, but at the same time, it's like. Of all the issues pressing, that's like down the line, probably, um, just because you, you probably alienate a lot of people who otherwise would be on board with, and it's just a hypothetical, just hypothetically speaking. The point is that you just need to be pragmatic with how you achieve these things. But the punditry it needs to be, we should be honest, and we should present a holistic diagnosis of American decline, and we should be the ones that can take it a little bit further. So. Um, that's why it's particularly insidious that the National Review is, I mean, they're not running for authors, right? What do they care? Okay, well, they're trying to ensure that no actual opposition to, you know, to to this stuff, to leftism arises. They're trying to neutralize that. They're not just kind of hiding their power level so they can get elected. Uh, so that, that's why that's why I think there's, yeah, the, the National Review, con ink, punditry, controlled opposition stuff is is a lot worse. So that's well, my, uh, those yeah. my thoughts on all, and they have all to... that. They have to please their donors, and their donors yeah. operate their influence in the corporate sphere. And um, you know that the corporate sphere has been completely uh, revolutionized by the the woke left, um, and that's just kind of the milieu that that they're in. And 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 National Review is downstream from that, um, completely at odds with you know the, the you know the base subscriber that they're trying to appeal to. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but that's that's kind of the way of the world. That's how most of the institutions are right now. What do you think about the? The new right, so-called, the online right, it's very chaotic. Um, I, I I don't see that something like paleoconservatism or traditionalist conservatism is getting a lot of um, – I mean there, there are people that are rediscovering things, but I think the new right in general, the online right, is very chaotic. Uh, there's a lot of people that are – you know, you can go down all kinds of different rabbit holes and trends and trajectories on the internet – from paganism, uh, you know, to the recovery of of uh, you know Norse politics, there's all kinds of interesting things to go. So, what do you think about the prospects of the online right? Are they making a meaningful difference? Um, and and what what do you see? What do you see there? I mean, obviously, they're doing good job in opposing neoconservatism and opposing regime conservatism. Um, but I, I I'm just I'm just curious, you know, what what your take is on some of the the online happenings. Sure. I think how we conceive of, it's not just Twitter, but it's largely Twitter. I would just say the online dissident right or the online right, how we conceive of that. You said, you said the new right that can be, that can be used as well. How we conceive of that is very important because any, regardless of what you believe in, as long as you have 
staunch and sincerely held right wing specific right wing values and ideals logging into right wing Twitter, looking at right wing YouTube accounts, you're going to see stuff you disagree with. You're going to see stuff that you are totally horrified by. How dare you say that from people who are, you know, just as right wing as you, but of, of a different variety. It's a lot um, of so fun. I think it's actually. Best... It's a lot of fun, you know, to, yeah, it, it, it I, I, fun. I yeah. think the right has more fun online than the left. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why you, you know, there are these two girls, uh, or women, uh, the hosts of this Red Scare podcast. It was, you know, it's it was like a big Bernie bro podcast. It's very popular. I don't know how many listeners they have, but if you look at their Patreon, they're breaking it in. And I mean, they're basically openly right wing now. Why? Because they just spend so much time on Twitter that, you know, our space is just more. It's it's not even just that like the arguments or whatever. It's it's fun. It's yeah. it's reverent. It's it's edgy. Uh, it's it, there's just a magic to. Uh, right wing Twitter that that is not found on like left wing Twitter or really anywhere else, right? There's just this font of of creativity and inspiration that that enthralls people, and yeah, it's it's fantastic. So I, I would say that there's just there's yeah there's tons of disagreement. There you're gonna see, see people all over the spectrum, and there's never gonna be a complete unity. It's just a chaotic space where you can say basically whatever you want, right? The edgier you get, the more likely even <laughs> right. Elon Musk, you're going to, you're going to get kicked off of Twitter. Um, but it's, it's good to just have this chaotic space where anything goes more or less. Um, I would never advocate for, you know, you know, extremely, you know, the extreme stuff or, you know, people saying illegal things or whatever, but um, you know, people say all sorts of things and that's where it's, it's a really a breath of fresh air because obviously there's, there's an immensely powerful and complex system of social control that exists to ensure that people don't talk about these issues. Mm -hmm. We're all, we all, you know, if you didn't see it back in 2016, hopefully you see it now, right? Where mm -hmm. you say the wrong thing, you get fired. This whole, this whole cancel culture it existed long before conservatives started talking about it. And it's worth pointing out that many conservatives in the con ink sphere who rail against the evils of cancel culture engage in it as well right well you know, let me I just yeah i i'm obligated to kind of to to interject here and just say please, that no. i mean chronicles magazine was um not born into this but really thrived as a result of uh the conservative purges of the 1990s i mean sam francis himself was kicked out of i think it was the washington times um yeah. by dinesh d'souza i, I don't yeah. know if you know that but he was he was the guy that tattle told on Sam Francis and uh, Sam uh, lost his job there and it was over immigration issues. So um, the idea that, and I'm not even opposed to like this, to, to some forms of a cancel culture. I think we need more of a right wing cancel culture. Like the idea that I'm supposed to be opposed to, um, you know, shutting up teachers who are, you know, issuing transsexual propaganda in schools. Like I have yeah, no problem absolutely. with that at all. We, we, we don't need to have this classically liberal, like any view can be expressed in any context at all. I think that's ridiculous and subversive, and it also caters to left-wing momentum, um, which, by the way, brings me to the other point I wanted to, to, to talk about, um, the shooting. The shooting happened this week, um, a crazed, mentally ill, transsexual shooter. Um, basically, I don't know how many – I don't know how many died, but it was at a Christian school um, – and of course, the media's framing of it is predictable. You know, they're going to focus on not misgendering um, this person. That this is um, an interesting idea of of what's what's coming down the pipeline. I think, and you can you can completely tell that the media is is ready to frame these things in a way that benefits its own um, ideology. And some people are like, "Wow, the media is not serious. They're complete jokes." 
Um, I don't I don't think that's true. I think that they've had these um these this framing set up for a long time and they're ready now to cash in on it. I think they want to make this about uh the poor unfortunate victim who uh went crazy and 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 shot people because she was abused or he or she was abused growing up. Um I think they want that to be the focus rather than the the innocent victims. Uh I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean it's uh, the shooting in Nashville was clearly horrific, exceptionally horrific in fact uh, compared to a lot of these others to go to a Christian school to you know wreak havoc and murder people um is a bit one it's hard to it, you know I, we don't want to try to imagine more evil things than that that would take us down extremely dark lines of of you know thought but I think there's something some darkly symbolic about the Nashville shooting you had Mm-hmm. A transgender, I believe it was female to male, so female, of course, um, named this this person named Audrey Hale, who was a woman, despite the you know mental the, the tragic mental illness that she adopted. One wonders, uh, was it you know was she groomed into this stuff online? Was you know what what actually turns people transgender is something that is not discussed nearly as often as it should be. You'd think society would want to understand this, but uh, we're told there's this kind of metaphysics where you can be inside you can be a, a, a sex or a gender there are you know obviously hundreds of them whatever at this point other than your biological sex but that's that's obviously not the case there's nothing inside that's uh that that's like can have a different yeah it just doesn't work that way so regardless this person the symbolism is went into went into a, a space that what is a christian school well a christian school is obviously a place where christians can have their children brought up to be christian okay that's kind of tautological but the important thing to keep in mind is well, why are people putting their kids in christian schools these days in particular it's mm-hmm. because of freaks like audrey hale and everything she embodies and believes in mm-hmm. that people w- oftentimes want that's what they want to get their kids away from people want to get their kids away from leftism from the rot of of this just disgusting decay of civilizational of our civilization and you know audrey it really basically represents that force of leftism that's that says no you don't actually get to escape the left is not willing to let and let live and let live the presence of the entire world, but like some tiny island could be woke and leftist. But as long as that island was Christian and conservative, they would want to eradicate it, right? And it, that's that's really the symbolism, is that leftism is this force that encroaches into spaces that are explicitly designed to keep it out. And it it just really cannot tolerate the existence of anything that is good and orderly and truthful. So it's... They do want to frame Audrey as a victim. And why is that? Because Audrey is aligned with power. I don't think the regime actually wants these transgender, you know, individuals. Uh, I'll, I'll pick my words uh, carefully for the sake of YouTube. That these transgender individuals to go and do shootings like this, right? It doesn't it doesn't work out to the left's advantage, but they're not going to they're, they're going to put a sympathetic spin on the person. They won't defend the deed typically. That's up to the average leftist activists, not the mainstream media. The leftist activists will say, you know, in some of these tweets, uh, we, we've seen them where they say, well, basically, I'm not shedding any tears for these Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and what's worth pointing out is that the media has has blood libeled uh, white people, conservatives, Christians as being involved in this vast conspiracy to literally genocide transgender people. You know, Charlie Kirk made some comments, said that we should deal with transgender people the way we did in the 50s and the 60s. And I don't think he was referring to 
you know, lynching or anything of the sort. I'd be very surprised if he, he if he was. I think he was saying that you know we just shouldn't be indulging in these people's delusions, right? And he's absolutely <laughs> correct about that. Well, the left used that to gin up a star. I mean, these tweets getting millions and millions of likes and views and whatever, saying that Charlie Kirk is advocating for trans genocide, that Charlie Kirk specifically is advocating for the lynching of transgender people. Well, he, when he went to speak at UC Davis, there was a particularly aggrieved and violent, obstreperous mob that, you know, rioted and, and made it very, you know, we're trying to attack people and whatever else. And the left is absolutely complicit in this blood libel against anything remotely traditional or right of center. And that does lead to violence. It absolutely does lead to violence. There have been black killers who have who have gone out to kill white people and they've said it because of like critical race theory stuff. I'm laughing, but it's 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 just it's just so fascinating to look at, you know, the double standard, which is it was a bit trite, I suppose, sometimes, but I, you know, they're saying that if you want to criticize immigration, you're complicit in like the Christchurch shooting or something. It's insane. But then they're explicitly telling transgender people who are already pretty unstable and not not the best, uh, doing the best in the head, and uh, you know, black people who have disproportionate rates of of violent crime, that you know, white conservative Christians are coming to kill them literally. Mm -hmm. Right? We heard that about Trump. They said Trump was trying to genocide minorities. He was he was posing a threat to the the very existence, the very life of minor people of color and it's it's utterly absurd you know the platinum plan and all this other thing that's the result of uh you know genocidal white evil white supremacist I, I don't think so yeah uh, so just to kind of recap that yes the left will defend the character as kind of a tragic character they will always place the blame they will always find a way to blame their other side and that's because the left is ultimately uh, obsessed with power they know just what 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 is going to give them the most power what is going to defend them the most and really the tactical position is is to not defend the shooting of course uh but to defend the character because then the narrative can be well you know maybe, maybe you know maybe maybe you christian conservatives had shouldn't have been so hard right mm -hmm. they'll say well you guys are trying to genocide people like Aldry hall so can you really be that surprised and you see a lot of these takes already so it's it's a horrific state of affairs and you know i predicted on twitter that you're going to see more trans mass shooters again these are mentally ill people you should pray for them but we should under no circumstances indulge in their delusions and you're going to see more mass shootings and by the way just to be very clear every time there's a mass shooting you have people spreading the lie another blood blood <laughs> libel against white people that you have left is spreading the line that the white people are the most uh, responsible for white shootings, right? You got to watch out for a white guy with a gun. Watch out for those white Trump supporters. They're going to shoot up a school or whatever. According to the New York Times' own data, uh, three quarters of mass shooting victims and assailants are black. Mm -hmm. Now, what some of these, uh, just, just to summarize this, uh, what some of these studies, other studies do, the New York Times was uh, uniquely and, and curiously honest with this particular study. When you look at mass shooting data, you have to just account for are they are they taking out like black crime, gang crime, and things of that nature. When they selectively do that, oh, lo and behold, once you remove uh, the demographic that's responsible for the most, you know, uh, homicides in the country from mass shooting data, then all of a sudden, no oh, white people, wow, they're so bad. So there, there are many blood libels against Christians. Uh, white, white people, conservatives, usually a combination of those out there, and we just have to be prepared to push back against this stuff. We too. This is, I mean, the left 
the left is masterful at these tactics. I mean, they've they've really become world class experts in in using rhetoric and using framing uh, to get their way. And this has been the way it's been for a hundred years. Uh, this is this is how the left does it. Uh, everything in our society is framed uh, in a way that that benefits them, and, and it's hard to even argue with it. <clears throat> and uh, you know, this this kind of brings us up to to another point. You know, you have people like because you mentioned the online right and how a lot of people aren't being persuaded by you know the logical coherence of the argument, but just the the atmosphere, the culture, the the ability to have fun and realize that you can't be so stodgy. Um, about things because otherwise you just turn out to be like a grumpy old leftist, basically. Um, and that's one of the that's one of the things that the, the right can can cling to. Um, it, so you have so you have like gatekeeper, the gatekeeper, right? Like like the Ben Shapiro's, you know, and he has his phrase that you know your feelings don't care about your facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about feelings. Yeah. And it's it's funny because it's actually the other way. Like you know, people aren't going to be persuaded by these logical deduction, mm. you know. Every time yeah. they're they're going to be persuaded by just seeing the the absurdity of being on the left and just the the fun the real life fun that can that can be had by living your life normally like being my normal person and not worried about what the New York Times could write up about you if they caught you saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, you know. So that's that's kind yeah. of one of the benefits that that the right has and and one of the reasons I think that the uh, there, there's a, a growing chasm uh, on the internet between you know what what the uh, New York Times and David French and others want you to believe and what's actually being believed. Um, <clears throat> but one of the one of the things that you did say as well um, is that they don't, you know, the left doesn't want these, you know, massacres, these transsexual massacres, because that kind of goes against what they're trying to argue for, which is that transsexuals can be assimilated into American culture. Um, but I think conservatives sh should be careful too, because you know they shouldn't they shouldn't. You know, it looked like they're arguing that the problem with transsexualism is that we could get murders out of them. You know, there's actually, right. you know, you, you, there's actually cultural points to be had um, and to be made um, that I think we should we should be really be doubling down on that that transsexualism is actually subversive of our culture, independent of its violence. Um, you know, so these things are horrible and they should be used, um, you know, you know, for our purposes and they should be, you know, Christian schools should be defended and um Hopefully, parents are more aware of of the things that can happen. Um, but at the same time, transsexualism is bad just because it's culturally subversive, subversive just because it's revolutionary against the natural order of things. Um, and sometimes we can fall into this trap of just looking at the most, um, you know, you know, headlines, all these headlines about violence and all the terrible things that can happen with crime, and we forget about the fact that there is a cultural argument to be made independent of the violence. Um, so may maybe talk yeah. a little bit about that and, and and why weren't conservatives conservatives should have been up in arms, uh, you know, decades ago during the homosexual trend. You know, now that now that's kind of percolated out and it's kind of accepted. Uh, but this is this is the thing: transsexualism is going to be accepted in movement conservatism within five years. Absolutely. Again, we've already seen the articles in National Review, multiple, right? There was one that came out I, sometime in the last six months, and it was not verbatim the conservative case for a transgenderism at National Review. And I read it, and people on Twitter were up in arms. Here, they finally did it. And I'm thinking, I they, they've already written something like this. Mm -hmm. I remember when I, I, I wrote my piece for my first piece for Chronicles magazine in on, on the leftward shift. When was that? That was late 2021, somewhere around there. And I remember, I was like, wait, no, I, when I was writing this piece for Chronicles, I, I cited a different, an entirely different 
um, article in National Review, the K, the conservative case for you know it's mm-hmm. time for a compromise. Well, that's really mm-hmm. what it is. It's it's they're arguing that you you have to compromise on this issue. Yeah, I mean we should just reject the false metaphysics of transgenderism. We can do it on. I think it's important to make both religious and secular, Christian and secular arguments against a lot against a lot of this stuff because I unfortunately we're in a period of of you know considerable secularism. You know, there there are secular right wing thinkers. I'm I, whose ideas I, I enjoy. I just don't really know what a secular, a completely secular right wing country would look like. That's kind of historically not. You know, even if you want to go back to Rome or Greece or whatever, well, they had their gods. They had they had that in, you know integral part of society. The, the point being, though, is there are plenty of good arguments to be made, religious and secular, against transgenderism. And if the right isn't willing to search i mean fortunately now it's like you know two genders so to speak is boom you know that's presented by a lot of these conservative talking heads as like an edgy talking point or whatever but yeah i mean it's worth pointing out that even even if those of us who know the score a little bit better look at that and say oh wow you think that like we agree but you you know that presented as if it's some kind of edgy mind-blowing take it's like okay no that that's like below the bare minimum um, it's worth keeping in mind that, yeah, if nothing changes on a long enough timeline, then even two genders is going to be viewed as as too much. The arguments will be the same. It's, well, you know, we just we stand for liberty. That's always what mm-hmm. they revert to. It's like, well, we we stand for freedom, and you know, it's not a it's not the government's business. And, you know, they're conservatives just the same as us. Just look at the arguments that they're making for um, you know, gay people, basically. Uh, I don't hate gay people, of course, but um, that's it's the same thing that they'll do for for transgenderism. So, I agree. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I I was reading um, you know, I was reading a a book by T. S. Eliot on um, I think it was the, I think it's called the idea of a Christian society. You've probably heard of it. <clears throat> uh, people need to read T. S. Eliot, by the way. Um, he was you know he was a, a hero of of Russell Kirk's. Um, you know, his, his version of traditionalist conservatism is, um, sort of been repealed, culturally repealed by now, but nevertheless, um, there, there are important insights that he has. One of which is the fact that, you know, the, the further this, this line of thinking goes, the totalitarianism that, that percolates out into society and the culture that is going to be built on this type of, um, you know, mental totalitarianism is going to be done in the name of individual liberty. It's going to be done in the name of emancipation. It's going to be done in the name of um, freeing ourselves from our, uh, you know, the bondages of the past. Um, mm-hmm. The rhetoric of liberty is is going to be it's going to be driving the way. And it really is right now. I mean, everything that you see about what you're not allowed to say uh, in the corporate sphere and in the in the public sphere um, is done in the name of freedom. You know, and and so then I think that's kind of uh, something that I want to close on um, is just this theme of freedom in the service of the total state. Um, so 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 maybe talk a little bit about about that. And because you see it everywhere. I mean, every time there's something going going on that um, people recognize is going to limit their ability to to, to exercise their religious or right-wing secular opinion on some matter, uh, it's done in the name of freedom. You have to be silent. You have to be tolerant in the name of freedom. You cannot speak up. You cannot oppose these for freedom's sake. And it's really – the paradox is there. The paradox has been noticed for you know 100 years. I mean T.S. Eliot wrote this essay I think in the 30s. Um, it's sort of been on this trajectory for a long time, totalitarianism in the name of freedom. Yeah, well, this idea of radical liberation is at the core of of leftism, of wokeness. This, you know, that the, these bonds that previously united man to 
one another that provided him, furnished him with a, a sense of himself in society and the the cosmos, in the case of religion, the idea that the left puts forward is that these, well, these, no, these were all just forms of oppression. I mean, a lot of this can be traced to, you know, Foucault had these, these ideas about, you know, he was an immense, just utterly, utter reprobate, other other sexual deviant who died as a result of that. The thing with, yeah, with Foucault, it's, uh, you know, much based on like a cursory understanding of his politics. Uh, a lot of it was like, well, you know, you know, society is just like a big conspiracy to deny you like, uh, you know, just <laughs> the grossest right, right. forms of sex possible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so th this radical liberation, yeah, it is, it is very, it's, it is very evil. It's very destructive. And that goes back to the metaphysics of, of leftism is that it is this corrosive force. It is a corrosive force that withers away away anything any any social structure any any bonds uh, between people any ideas um but just you know it'll on a long enough timeline it'll lead up anything but it, it usually is selective it eats up the things that are uh, that are opposed to it it looks for you know bastions of, of tradition and conservatism and, and whatever and and it like an evil force an evil monster it just it just devours them so radical liberation is is the essence of yeah the essence of of leftism it, it just withers things away, it eats things away. And, you know, if you want to have a society with liberty, I mean, I'm, I'm a very right-wing guy, right? I'm not, I'm not a libertarian, uh, but I do value liberty, right? I don't want a society mm -hmm. and, you know, you want a society where people who are well-to-do, who are not screwing, you know, doing what they should be doing, basically, like raising families, going to work, you know, living healthy lifestyles, people who aren't, you know, criminals, basically. You want them to be largely left alone, right? I, I'm not trying to set up a right wing, you know, people joke about this stuff on Twitter, you know, a right wing government where it's now is, you know, 7pm, everyone sit down to watch, I don't know, maybe the Chronicles uh, podcast of of the evening or something of the sort, you know, people, it's fun to joke about stuff like that on Twitter. But yeah, I think we all value, you know, paleo cops, we value liberty. But the, the important takeaway is that you need order first, you need order mm -hmm. before you can have any real sense of liberty. Uh, if you to just total radical liberation, right? To totally liberate man from all of these things. Okay, you take away religion, you take away family, you take is man free in like a meaningful sense? What is he free to do at that point? Is he free to enjoy a cohesive society that provides people with a sense of meaning? No, he's not, right? Because that has been taken from him. Is a man, you know, stripped of all all of these levels of meaning and identity? Is he free to you know, walk down the street without getting stabbed. No, uh, he's probably, probably, you know, that's probably going to happen uh, in a society that, that doesn't value order. So you, with, with the right order, then you have a, a real meaningful sense of liberty. The sense of meaning that's derived just from throwing off all of these shackles. Well, we've done a lot of that and people are objectively, objectively less happy. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of empirical data that really just shows the extent to which leftism has failed. It has failed to provide man with a sense of satisfaction of meaning. If you want to go back to Aristotle, right, both in, in, in his ethics and his politics, the end goal is eudaimonia, right? It is, it is virtue, it is happiness, and, you know, happiness that is achieved by virtue. Well, society has objectively failed in that regard. The Chicago General Social Survey, which is by no means some reactionary right-wing form of social science, has proven very demonstrably that since the 70s, when it started started when it started compiling data on this uh, rates of, of happiness for both men and women have declined and for women they've declined more substantially right mm -hmm. lo and behold men 
you know, able to do a little better without families, without traditional values. Women need it a lot mm. more. Uh, that isn't to say men don't need it. <laughs> to, to say anything of that sort. But uh, yeah, the leftist project has failed. Radical liberation, it makes people less happy. I will say that no society will please everyone, even in a an orderly, you know, go back to the society of the, the 50s, the 60s, uh, 1850s, whatever. There are always going to be people for whom an orderly society is too suffocating, too repressive. Everyone isn't going to fit into the mold, but ideally, you know, the more eccentric types and you know, whatever, I recognize the the necessity of, of the social order. It's once those types really start waging war on that order that, uh, you know, they need to be stopped. So, you know, and it's, uh, I, I think, I think, you know, there, there are pros and cons to a very orderly society and a very open society. And generally speaking, and I think there's a lot of data to back this up. Again, people are happier in an orderly society. That's the, I think the best way to look at that. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when when you talk about all the damage that's been done um, after, you know, from the post-civil rights regime, basically, you get a lot of response where, you know, it wasn't it wasn't good for this person beforehand. It wasn't good for this person beforehand. But, you know, the right the right wing needs to recognize that, um, yes, we're going to have trade offs. We're going to have we're going to have people that uh, do not benefit from a transition and there are people that do benefit. And so the question is. Are is is your are your people the tribe that you affiliate with? Are they going to benefit or are they not going to benefit? Because we don't have we can't build this utopia, and I think that's what the left has always wanted to do. Um, presumably, prima like on its face, that's what it said it wanted yeah. to do. As it turns out, however, there are mighty swaths of people that are losers from this. The people of Scotland are not free to fight and represent their own ancestors anymore. You know, they're they're being occupied by someone with a completely different frame of reference, with a completely different scale of priorities. Um, so what kind of freedom do they have to, you know, honor their own ancestors and to fight for their posterity? So, you know, every system and every trend has a trade-off, and people need to recognize that it's either going to be um the people in power are going to um initiate actions that that are against you know your frame of reference and against your priorities or um for them and i and i don't think we can have uh, something that serves everybody and the idea that we can actually serves to undermine you because the people fighting for power don't really care about your priorities and they don't really care about the things that you value uh, and i think the right that's one of the lessons of the online right and that's one of the things that they get really that they're really good on is they recognize that we have to fight for ourselves because they're because the left is is fighting against us well said. Absolutely. So uh, with with that, I think I think we'll call it a wrap. Why don't you uh, tell everybody where they can find you? And I'd love to have you on again. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a great discussion. So I can be found on YouTube, Patrick Casey. I think it's youtube.com slash at Restore Order USA. At the very least, finding me on Twitter might be a little easier. Uh, that's definitely at Restore Order USA. And you can find my link tree there you can find links to uh you know my author page on chronicles and other places i've written but really twitter and youtube are the main places to look for me 